This is a re-recording of this morning's message at Grace Christian Church Budrum. Due to technical issues, we were unable to record the sermon at the time. However, you can still go onto our Facebook page and watch a recording of the live stream. We're going to read now from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learnt it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, please let us hear your word now taught, so that, as we received Christ Jesus the Lord, we might walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, full of thankfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd be very grateful if you had a Bible open with you so that you can follow along. You also might find the outline on our service sheet helpful. About 30 years after Jesus lived, died, rose again, and returned to heaven, two men arrived at the house of a man named Philemon in the Phrygian city of Colossae in what is now Turkey. And the church that met in Philemon's house was eager to receive them. One of the two men was Tychicus, a well-loved and appreciated Christian appreciated for his gospel ministry in the Roman province of Asia Minor. The other guy was more of a surprise. He was someone they thought they'd never see again. You see, Onesimus was a slave who had risked his life by running away from his master, the owner of the house where the church now met. Onesimus had probably robbed Philemon in the process of running away as well. 
but on his misadventure he'd become a Christian. And he'd come back to face the music, but not as a slave to a master, but rather as a brother in Christ. But that story is for another letter. That's the short one after Colossians called Philemon, which we might look at uh, after we've finished our eight weeks in Colossians. But now Tychicus and Onesimus had arrived, and with them they carried two letters, one to Philemon himself and one to the whole church at Colossae. And both of these are now in our New Testament. The church was very eager to hear the letter read out because it came from someone most of them had never met, but someone they'd heard so much about, the Apostle Paul, who was currently in prison. In the last 10 years, Epaphras had been in Ephesus, near the coast, near the western coast of Asia Minor, and while he was there, he heard the gospel from Paul. His life was never the same after he met Jesus. And the Bible suggests that he went back on his route to Colossae and founded churches at Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, cities along the Lycus River. So he planted the church which now met in Philemon's house, the, the ones who received the letter to Paul, that Paul wrote to the Colossians. So while Epaphras' hero was obviously Jesus, he owed a lot to Paul and had probably shared a lot about Paul to the church members at Colossae. By this point, Epaphras had handed on the ministry at Colossae, but he'd caught up with Paul in his prison cell and taught him, told him about how the Lord was blessing the gospel's impact at Colossae, as well as some of the inevitable challenges the church faced as an outpost of the gospel in the world. Paul's response to this news was to write a letter to encourage them to stick with Jesus, to never move on from the gospel they first heard, because Jesus is king today as he ever was, and life together with him as his people is the only real life there is. Now, this term at Grace, we're going to read and consider Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians. We'll be doing that over the next eight weeks, and I'll be sharing the series with some guest preachers as well. But let's remember that this letter wasn't just written to some Christians 2,000 years ago. It's also written to us, brothers and sisters in Christ with the Colossians, to encourage us to never move on from the gospel we heard. Because even in 2022, Jesus is still King. We'll be looking at this morning's passage under three headings. And the first of those is, Hello there. Verse 1 and 2, because there we have Paul's greeting in a fairly standard format. It's the first century equivalent of a good day or a hi there. But the fact that most of the Colossians had never met Paul might make us quite surprised at the deep affection for them and the unity with them that Paul expresses here. We're told first that the letter comes from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Verse 1. He's literally a sent one. That's what apostle means. In this case, designated personally by Jesus for God's great plan of salvation for the whole world. You see, in God's plan, Paul was the one he appointed to take the gospel beyond the nation of Israel. He's sometimes called, in fact, the apostle to the Gentiles. And Colossae was definitely a more Gentile city. We learn in the greeting that Paul is with Timothy the Ephesian pastor whose name is stamped on two New Testament letters and who traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. 
But notice that Timothy is not just a brother to Paul, he's a brother to the Colossians as well. Then Paul addresses those who will receive the letter, and he calls them the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. When Paul calls them saints, just know he's not getting all Roman Catholic. Saints literally means holy ones. In other words, those who are set apart for God. And that's exactly what Christians are. Those who have been set apart for God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, to use the words of verse 13 and 14, those he has delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if we're in Christ, then we're saints too, which is a marvelous thing. Now he also calls them faithful brothers. Because whether they have met face to face or not, whether in the same geographical location or not, Paul recognized that they are part of the same family because of Jesus. Now, I want to address a concern that some have about the kind of language Paul uses here and elsewhere in the New Testament, and the kind of language that's used by other Bible writers too. Because by writing the word brothers, it could look like Paul is devaluing women in the church, devaluing the sisters at Colossae, the faithful sisters. And to some people, this is the, one of the biggest issues in Christianity, male dominance, uh, patriarchalism, or even worse, some form of toxic masculinity. But we've got to know that's not at all what Paul means when he calls them brothers. Because though it might sound weird to us, he's actually calling the sisters brothers as well. Let me explain. If we look at the whole New Testament, we see that the gospel and the new community it establishes under King Jesus completely subverts the status quo when it comes to the value of human beings in society, for children, for slaves, and especially for women. We'll see this worked out practically as we get deeper into Colossians, especially in chapter 3. You see, Paul had great regard and respect for the women who served with him in the cause of Jesus in his gospel, and he gave them a standing and a regard and an honor that some church traditions today might even find a little uncomfortable. If we flick ahead for a moment to Colossians 4.15, Paul sends greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. It's another town a little bit further along the river valley from Colossae. But as he gives greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, he singles out for special mention Nympha, whose house the church meets in. Nympha's a female name, that must mean that somehow Nympha, though a woman, is also a brother. And that's kind of the point. You see, if Paul had written brothers and sisters, as some Bible translations do to keep with the times, he would have created two different categories of believers when he's trying instead to emphasize the glorious oneness that we all share as members, as children of Christ's family. Really, the word should be siblings. But the Greek Paul knew doesn't have a good word which means male and female children like we have in English. So he calls them brothers, both the guys and the girls, because they enjoy exactly the same place in God's family. I hope that makes sense. I hope it dispels some misconceptions of misogyny that some have uh, on, on what the Bible says. 
Well, after a greeting of grace and peace from God, who's the father of them all together, Paul and the Colossian Christians, men and women, Paul shares how he is praying for them. These Christians, most of whom he's never met. And his prayers are neatly divided into two parts. How he thanks God for them, verse 3 to 8. And then what he asks God for them, verse 9 to 14. Now in churches, it's amazing what you discover when you get to know people. In a church where I used to serve, there was an old man and his wife who would attend our, our staff prayer meeting faithfully every Monday. And one day I asked him what he did for work before he retired. It turns out he was a food chemist. And then he told me something amazing about himself. Now I'm sure you, you're familiar with the chips called twisties, the long cheesy corn things. Well, in South Africa, where I grew up, we had a similar product called knickknacks. And it turns out that this faithful old man, who I used to pray with every Monday, back in the early 1970s, had invented the precise formula for the spray-on cheese flavoring used to coat the chips. I mean, talk about changing the world. And you think you know people. In the same church, there was another very old lady who's since gone to be with the Lord. She'd sit in the second row from the front on the right-hand side. I can remember exactly where she sat. She was deep in her 90s, quite frail. And though she came to church every Sunday faithfully, someone brought her. About midway through every service, she would slowly lean further and further over until she fell asleep with her head on the shoulder of whoever was sitting next to her. And you know, sometimes you'd see the panic in the eyes of a trapped visitor who had ended up in the seat next to Auntie Mari. At her funeral, though, I discovered that during the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya in the 1950s, where native Kenyans tried to throw off the shackles of British colonial racism and subjugation, this old lady had grabbed a gun and single-handedly defended her family and their farm. It's no wonder she needed a little doze now and then. The point is that there's so much to know about one another. Our church family is filled with, with the most incredible stories. I've heard some. There's many I'm sure I haven't heard. How well do you think you know the person sitting next to you in church? But fascinating story or not, each Christian in our church family actually has an even more amazing story. A story of hearing and understanding the grace of God in truth. Verse 6. A story of being qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 12. A story of being delivered from the domain of darkness and being transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have received redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 13 and 14. There is so much more to know about the people we sit next to on Sundays. Those we share a cup of, of coffee or, or tea with after a service. So many stories to hear, but the question this passage raises for us is, do we know one another's most amazing story of how they heard the gospel, responded to Jesus, and were saved? Have we heard that story from one another? Remember, Paul had never met the Christians at Colossae. He knew a few of them, like Epaphras, it sounds like he knew Philemon as well. But what's captured him and excited him from Epaphras' report is not their building project or their membership numbers or their ministry program for the year, their social calendar or their bank balance. What's got Paul overjoyed is the proof of their faith in Jesus. 
their deep love for one another across cultural and ethnic barriers, their unshakable hope beyond this world for an eternity with God forever in heaven. It's those things we read about in verse 4 and 5. This is the fruit of the gospel they have heard and understood, verse 5, which is bearing fruit and increasing in them just the same way it is all over the world, verse 6. So Paul, this is better than any other life story he could possibly hear about these Christians at Colossae. It's evidence of God at work, realizing his ancient promises and bringing the kingdom of Christ closer to its full reveal. Often what we know about one another, even as a church family, can actually be self-serving. We want to know about others to see whether or not they're interesting. Whether or not they like the things we like, or work in the same industry we do, or live in the same area we do. To work out somehow if they are people like us, whatever that might mean. But then we use these factoids to decide how close it's worth being to someone. At worst, we want to know things about others so that we can be the one with the power of the inside scoop, or to be the ones who are noticed alongside the really interesting people, the really influential people. Or we can use these things we know as an opportunity for gossip. But here we're shown a far better way. Paul loves Jesus, and he tells us in verse 28 that his greatest desire is to proclaim Jesus in order to see people presented mature in Christ. We're told in chapter 2, verse 6 to 7, what that means. Like it, if you have a Bible with you right now, turn with me to chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 for a moment. Listen to what it says. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See, this one sentence sums up Paul's gospel heart for this church family. And this is what he means when he talks about Christian maturity, firmly and gratefully sticking with Jesus. This is what he's most eager to know about the Christians at Colossae. But not to serve himself. Paul uses his knowledge of the Colossian Christians to serve God. So he takes the valuable, incredible things he knows of the work God has done and is doing in them and through them, and he turns it into prayer, giving God the credit for it all. And even sitting in a prison cell, Paul has so much to thank God for because of where his heart is. And where his heart for them really is. Well, moving on to our third point, knowing enough to ask God, verse 9 to 14. Paul's prayers for them don't just stop at thanking God for what he's doing among the Christians at Colossae, just looking back, as it were. Remember, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 is a summary of everything Paul is saying to them, and a summary, actually, of what God wants for his people everywhere. So it's no surprise that his prayers for them, in verse 9 to 14, reflect these priorities. He's grateful for God's work among them, and he wants to see God work in them more and more. Now I know that there are many faithful prayers in our church family. And without us depending on God in prayer, our ministry would be dead in the water. There'd be no life in our, in our shared ministry as a church. 
But when we pray for one another here in church or in our small groups or in our prayer meetings or one-to-one, how do we usually pray for one another? I'd like you to imagine for a moment a series of concentric circles with a heart at the center. I'll put it up like on the screen. The heart in the middle represents our maturity in Christ, where God works to establish us more and more firmly in Jesus. The circles represent how much impact the things we pray for will have on our Christian maturity. So in the outer circle, we could put situational prayers, prayers about our circumstances. These are prayers like praying for someone's lost cat, or praying for a new car or a new job, or even prayer for getting over an illness or an injury. These are not bad things to pray for. Remember, we pray to an all-powerful, sovereign Father who loves us and delights to hear and answer our prayers. But if we're honest, I think the impact of these things on our Christian maturity is often minimal. I think also, sometimes if God answered these prayers, it might actually make us more immature Christians. It might work against our maturity. But in the next circle in, we could put relational prayers. Prayers about people. Prayer for being more patient with a difficult person in our lives. Prayer for reconciliation with someone. Prayer for opportunities to share the gospel with someone and that they might respond. These have a very obvious effect on our hearts and they often require God to work some change on our hearts and the hearts of others. The impact on our Christian maturity is far greater than the first circle. But the innermost circle, that one we'll call purposeful prayers. Prayers targeted on God's purpose for us in Christ. It's prayer for exactly the sort of things we read about in verse 9 to 13. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. These are prayers that God cannot answer without grounding us more and more in the Lord Jesus, rooting us more and more in Christ. These are prayers entirely focused on our hearts, on our Christian maturity, God's purpose that we are established more and more in Jesus. Now, my experience, and I do include myself here, is that our prayers for one another are, I think, too often weighted towards the outer circle. Things that will change our circumstances but have little impact on our hearts. As we've said, none of these things are wrong to pray for because we pray to a generous Heavenly Father who loves us. But if this is all we pray for, for one another, perhaps it shows that we ourselves have a bit of a way to go in being filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Just to explain, when Paul talks about God's will here, he doesn't mean some hidden knowledge about the passage of your or my life on earth, where we will live, who we will marry, what job we will have, those sorts of things. When he talks about God's will here and in verse 1, he means God's eternal, universal will, his ultimate 
purpose to establish his promised kingdom under his promised king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul asks God that the Colossian Christians will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 9, he simply wants them to learn to see everything in the light of the gospel and its ultimate fulfillment. Think of it as seeing ourselves and others and the world through gospel glasses. And you know, when we see others, especially our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, through gospel glasses, we'll only be too eager to pray purposeful prayers for them. This is true of Paul, so it's no wonder he prays like this for them. Uh, His priority is not for their circumstances or even primarily for their relationships. His priority for these brothers and sisters in Christ is their maturity in Christ, which he knows will actually have a massive impact on their relationships and on how they face their situation. Verse 11 and 12 will result in all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Christian maturity means that in whatever situation, we face it with endurance, patience, joy, gratitude to God. But that results from prayer for our hearts, not for our circumstances. This Christian maturity is what Paul is eager to know about the Christians at Colossae. And having learned that it's happening, it's enough to move him to thank God for them, to pray to God for them with prayers entirely shaped by God's gospel purpose for them in Christ. He knows enough to thank God for them and he knows enough to pray to God for them, even though he's never met them face to face and even though he's separated by distance. Now, in these verses, Paul gives us a great model for prayer. He shows us how to have a healthy balance between thanking God and asking God when we pray. He also shows us the importance of regular prayer and regular prayer for others. And he shows us the value of praying for the same thing often, constantly. You know, praying prayers which can't just be answered like a, like a genie granting wishes just once but prayers which we want God to go on answering more and more and more. But he also shows us the best things to talk to God about when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, you know, he shows us how little we actually have to know about someone to pray deeply personal and purposeful prayers for them. We need to know what matters. As we said, Paul knows very little about the daily lives of the Colossian Christians. He probably doesn't know many of their names. He doesn't know what their church building looks like, the house where they meet. Uh, he doesn't know how they. He, he doesn't know um, what their day-to-day lives looked like. But he knows how they heard and responded to the gospel, and he's heard proof positive that they share a place with him in Christ's kingdom. How would our prayers for one another change if we knew the stories of how one another was saved? It might make us start praying for one another, but I suspect at the very least we'd feel the need to spend a lot of time thanking God for all the amazing work he's done, work which we might not have even given a second thought to. Because coming to Christ is not insignificant. God's work to bring each of us from darkness to light is a miracle of epic proportions, and it changes everything for us forever. 
That story has a greater impact on who we are than anything else. But sadly, we still find these conversations so awkward. It really shouldn't be like that. Maybe we need to put our gospel glasses on a bit more. If our knowledge of one another was founded less on our shared interests or circumstances and more on our shared place in the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, how do you think that might change how we relate to each other as a church family and how we talk to God about one another? And when we do need to pray for that sore toe, how might it change the way we pray for our brother, our sister in their discomfort? big question raised by today's passage is, do you know enough to pray purposeful prayers for one another? As I close, let me encourage you to ask someone you know here at Grace, perhaps even someone you think you know well, ask them, how did you become a Christian? These are conversations which will have a far greater impact and significance than discussing the Australian Open or covid After all, it's these stories of salvation that actually make us Christ's family together, far more than just turning up at the same building on a Sunday morning. And then when you've heard how your brother or your sister in Christ came to hear and understand the grace of God in truth, verse 6, can I encourage you to turn that knowledge into real, purposeful prayers when you pray for them? both thanking God for what he's done in them and asking God that he might do it more and more for the sake of Christ. These are prayers our Father in heaven delights to answer. Can you imagine what would happen here if he did? Well, how about we pray? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us. We thank you that you have brought each one of us out of darkness and into a new kingdom of light under Christ. Lord, help us to learn to relate to one another on this level, to know one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow saints, fellow heirs of your kingdom. Help us to have the courage to ask ask the question about how each other became Christians and then to turn those prayers into grateful thanks to you for what you've done and to pray purposeful prayers for them that they might grow in their maturity in Christ. Lord, we pray indeed that you would grow us in Christ uh, for your sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.